Hello everyone and welcome to the January intermission episode of FUDS on Film. I am Craig Eastman. With me tonight, as always, Scott Morris. Hello. And Drew Tavendale. How do? What a mixed bag we have for you today. We're going to be covering Birthday Wonderland, Little Women, Parasite and a small indie film called Rise of Skywalker. Probably in that order. So first of all, I suppose we should kick off with Birthday Wonderland. Who wants to talk about that gem? I shall do that. Please. Based on the children's story, Strange Journey from the Basement, by Sachiko Kashiwaba, Keiichi Hara's Birthday Wonderland, known in some markets simply as The Wonderland, though its it's Japanese name is actually Basude Wonderando, which immediately (laughs) makes me sound like I'm making fun of a Japanese saying that English name. (laughs) That's true. Um, Sorry, I've just I've just got <laughs> I've just got Engelbert Humperdinck Quando Quando stuck in my head now. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so my Engelbert Humperdinck begins and ends with lesbian seagulls. So <laughs> are there lesbian seagulls in this movie, Drew? No, um, not that we're aware of. There is a large bird. Okay. Sexual preference undetermined. <laughs> yes, but uh, Basso de Wanderando is a coming-of-age tale of a young girl bored with the world and unable to appreciate the natural beauty around her. This girl is a canny, Mayu Matsuoka, who is dispatched by her mother to her friend Chi, Anne Watanabe, and her shop will many stuff. Here she's supposed to pick up her birthday present, though Chi apparently has no idea what she's talking about. Left her own devices and wandering around the cluttered little building, potentially entirely stalked by Chi having persuaded a poor, ignorant foreign person to trade an artwork for some frippery or modern convenience, like a pack of moist wipes, she notices a lump of dried clay with a handprint in it. Obviously, as we all would, she puts her hand in it, and she finds her hand stuck. Now, rather than turning on a half-a-million-year-old planet-sized space kettle, as similar-looking devices have taught us ought to happen, <laughs> it, it summons from the shop's basement... Hippocrates, or Hippocrates, Masachika Ichimura, a famous alchemist from another world. You mean that famous other world? A nearby (laughs) world, but it's completely different. The one we see in movies and novels. This thing we call the parallel world, connected (laughs) to this basement. I've lived here my whole life, first I've heard of it. Hippocrates commands Akine to come with him as her help is needed, and the flighty but bold and adventure-seeking Chi comes along for the ride. They pass to the parallel world through the basement, and come first to a village populated by makers of woolly jumpers and huge, cute yet terrifying spherical sheep. Hippocrates explains to Akine that she's the reincarnation of the goddess of the green wind, and she must help the drought-ridden land. This will involve a long journey, a woolly jumper competition, the prince of the perpetual puddle or something, and an evil skeleton warrior. The plot and events move along largely by jumps of dream logic, which, while fitting in the tried and true did it all happen or was it just a dream story, are as unsatisfying in a film as they are when you're sleeping. Only thanks to being awake, you're immediately aware that they're problematic. (laughs) We're leaving the town of the nightmare mutton spheres. (laughs) <laughs> now we're in a sandstorm Now we're in the mountains While an old man waxes lyrical about snowflakes <laughs> Now we're driving off a bridge That stops in the middle of a lake And landing on a giant lily pad 
Now Akine's cat has appeared as a customs official with an unusual way to demonstrate love. <laughs> Naturally. Why? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark is why. <laughs> as the reborn goddess, Akine has a destiny to fulfil. But as she is given no instruction at all as to what to do, or why, or what is expected of her, and as she has no agency anyway, it's pretty unsatisfying as a story, and the end result is largely, oh, I guess flowers are kind of neat. <laughs> in the end, though Birthday Wonderland is still entertaining and quite funny in places, but it is sorely lacking in the, the wonder that its title promises or in any narrative tension whatsoever, very much being all surface, no feeling. However, the animation, if perhaps a little oversaturated, is at least generally pleasing to the eye. So it's by no means a bust, just nothing special. Scott, did you indulge of Birthday Wonderland? Yes, and I am broadly in agreement. It's fine, and only just fine. (laughs) It just about claws its way up there. All the same problems with it just being a bunch of very loosely linked stuff that happens. And I was thinking earlier about how annoying it must be if you're a creator of anime and whenever any non-specialist subject in matter in the West reviews it, their only point of comparison is like something like Studio Ghibli. So even if you do like a mid-range piece of work, you're going to be compared to the absolute best thing in the field. Yes, so, that's a problem. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean, to its credit, I think there are least a couple of points where it's getting at some of that Ghibli stuff and the way that some of it looks is frequently really nice and some of it's some of the way it kind of captures little moments of childhood and things like that kind of work there's little flashes of like the best of the best in there but like for maybe 20 seconds in the it's quite long actually it's two hours I think this film about two hours I think yeah Yeah, um, and the rest of it it just kind of gets buddies away in a bunch of a bunch of stuff, really. It's just a lot of events that happened with not an awful lot of linking devices between them. And as you say, the, the main character nominally has zero to no agency in any of it, apart from giving a speech at the end. The ceremony at the end is all very important and never really gets explained. I've no idea what's happening or why it's happening or why birds are suddenly appearing made out of water and all this kind of stuff. It's, none of it's very well explained. It's what I'm trying to get at. And uh, it, its gambit is that you're not going to care about the explanation. You're just going to sit along for the ride. And I think that's maybe a bit patronising. Even I think you know this is aimed at a much younger audience than us, no doubt. No doubt. Um, but I think that's a little bit patronising towards them. It smacks of that whole, well, if we just give them enough pretty pictures, the kids will be entertained. Mm. And they probably will be, but it's not high-quality entertainment. Well, why do birds suddenly appear, Scott? I don't know if the carpenters have actually explained that. I only know the first verse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, yeah, it's definitely strongest in the humour. I actually found it really quite funny in quite a few places. Yeah, there's a lot um, of charm in it. Yeah, yeah, and there's like the sort of like the running gag of Hippocrates at one point gets turned into a fly. Mm. And there's wee bits like that, and there's just the way Chi in particular, the way she just sort of doesn't have give any reverence to anything. Yeah, <laughs> um, and it's quite funny. So that carries it for a long, a long way. But it's the lack of any tension in the narrative and any cohesion is just, it's a big problem at the end. It's like, it, it, like I said, it really is dream logic. Just things happen. Yeah, you have no yeah. idea why it's happening, why they're going where they're going, and how they got where they're going. Yeah, uh, which is a pity because I've been quite looking forward to it. And it seemed to have fairly well regarded, and I watched it. Oh well. I don't mind having watched it. I would dissuade anyone. It looks nice enough, but it's 
unremarkable. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't feel like I wasted my time watching it, but at the same time, I don't think I could really recommend anyone else do it. You know what I mean? It's just not good enough to really be give it a glowing recommendation unless you are unless you're a very big anime fan and you just want to see this stuff. Yeah, you want <laughs> it's, to basically watch everything. Yeah, yes. Um it's certainly not one for the, the kind of more general audiences like ourselves, I guess, to, to really get very excited about, I think. Wonderful. Shall we let Craig talk about little women then? Yes, let's do that. Craig, would you talk about little women? <laughs> Thanks, Craig, I shall. Um much like 10 Cloverfield Lane did for its prequel a couple of years back, so this sequel to 1998's Small Soldiers seemed to come from out of nowhere. <laughs> its plot details forming a largely tangential and often downright cryptic connection to that movie. <laughs> no, um, that was my original stab at an intro, and I ran out of steam after that. Okay, so Barry Lyndon did a lot of things for me, but chiefly it taught me that I ought not to dismiss period dramas out of hand. Having said that, I've still been skirting them, finding it hard to shake the memories of Gosford, oh sorry, Gosford Park at doing little other than numbing my arse on a cinema seat for two hours, eleven minutes, and five hours precisely. <laughs> I'm never going to watch Downton Abbey, because if the depth of a movie stakes bottoms out at, will there be enough scones for the royal tea party? <laughs> I'm never going to generate enough <laughs> given momentum to get over that needed hill. And as for Jane Austen, well, she still hasn't risen from the grave and given me back any of that time she stole in high school English classes. I was aware of Little Women's cultural relevance to American literature as being very much the US analogue of Austen, but I have incredibly limited experience of the American classics, which, in tandem with my stated bias, means Louisa May Alcott's efforts have never crossed my mind, let alone my wheelhouse. I do, however, have some interest in Greta Gerwig as a director following her work on Ladybird. Mm. I do also recognise Saoirse... Is it Saoirse, Saoirse. isn't it? We've settled on Saoirse now. It's Saoirse, yes. Yeah, Saoirse Ronan, as perhaps the most naturally gifted actor of her generation. And, as I think Drew and I have agreed in an earlier episode, or certainly maybe our preamble before, uh, Florence Pugh is rapidly proving herself in a similar vein, having given performances that are uniformly excellent, even when they are concealed within movies that are not. <laughs> um, even when she's concealed in a big pile of flowers. yes. <laughs> And her friend is concealed in a bear. I couldn't speak for Timothy Chalamet until this point. I have no desire to watch his work because A, everyone swoons over how wonderfully perfect everything he does is and how wonderfully perfect he is and how wonderfully perfect his farts probably are, etc, etc. None of which can possibly be true. And B, I strongly believe that anyone who looks like Fido Dido cannot possibly be a reasonable example of humanity. More of him in a bit. So, anyway, I watched Little Women and don't you know, I had a wonderful time. There's a transcendent air surrounding the film that feels bizarrely timeful, timeless, and timely all at the same time, and which made the movie far more accessible than I had anticipated, even though I'd already heard numerous testimonies to that effect. Again, to be clear, I'm not acquainted with the source material, but I understand that Gerwig has stuck somewhat faithfully to Alcott's work for the most part, with the exception of the ending, which, fittingly, has been deftly retooled to address a widely acknowledged issue arising from Alcott's commitment to her publisher at the time. Crucially, rather than the words themselves, it's the delivery of some key dialogue which has been tweaked along the way, albeit subtly, and which lends this interpretation a resonance very much of the here and now. Where a teenage Craig found the endless marriage talk of Austin's repetitive society dances and tea parties the stuff of nightmares, Alcott is here given a fresh voice that reaches out across a century and a half to say something meaningful about one of the biggest issues being addressed in contemporary Western society. 
Quite how Gerwig has achieved this, I do not know, but that it gives the appearance of being with such a light touch probably belies a truth that is much more likely a labour of love. Of course, in large part, the film succeeds because it has an almost uniformly magnificent cast. Ronan, as the central figure of Joe, is pretty much beyond reproach. I don't have a lot more to say about that. Likewise, Florence Pugh as Amy and Eliza Scanlon as Beth. If there's a weak link among the sisters, it's Emma Watson's Meg, because Emma Watson is frankly massively outgunned by everyone else in this movie. I actually felt a little sorry for her in that respect, as everyone else here is an actual actor and frankly operating on a different plane of existence. Mm. Then I remembered something called Harry Potter and the fact that even though she can't act, and even though Meg March is the dullest entity in this movie, Emma Watson could withdraw and set fire to the equivalent of my annual salary each day for the rest of her natural life and still not have to worry about her financial security. And I felt a lot better about calling her out after that. <laughs> and so to Timothy Chalamet, against whom I have harboured such animosity. What could it possibly be about the young, preposterously handsome, extremely talented and wealthy Mr Chalamet that I find so objectionable? <laughs> Here's the thing about him in this film. He's great. <laughs> As the immature Laurie, I found myself confounded at how sympathetic the performance actually was, and how much I didn't, not even once, think of Fido Dido. <laughs> and, <laughs> and here's the thing about pretty much every other character. They're great too. A really weird thing happened in cinema last year, right round Right when we kind of needed it People started making films that were totally bereft of cynicism Much like Dolmite unapologetically refused to belittle its characters And similarly their motivations Here in Little Women, where there is learning and growth And the acknowledgement of failures of character It is wholly without judgement It's almost as if the film is daring to suggest that As adults, we ought to be allowed our mistakes If we are willing to learn from them And that compromise can be achieved without the loss of face who would have thunk it? I didn't dislike any of the people I spent time with in Little Women, not even Meg, really. And where I expected to be presented with character tropes, I was baffled to find none. Laurie's grandfather, Mr Lawrence, played here beautifully by Chris Cooper, ought to have been the angry old man across the street embittered by the loss of his daughter. But guess what? He's just a nice man who makes lovely <laughs> gestures occasionally and is sometimes understandably sad about some of the things he wishes hadn't happened. What is this fresh lunacy? <laughs> so yes, I wasn't expecting to enjoy Little Women half as much as I did and it feels like very much the right film at the right time. I realise that to the casual observer, of which I was one, the perception of this movie will be that of the source, that it is fundamentally a work for and about women. But there are lessons and observations here for absolutely everyone. Actually... I think it's kind of the point that men ought to watch it because by this point I'm pretty sure every woman I know has grown up with an acute understanding of what society, in inverted commas because we all know what that means, expects them to be, say and do. There's a little woman living in my house and, assuming we haven't ironed out all of society's shortcomings by then, sorry sorry <laughs> for that dose of cynicism, I hope that ten years from now she'll still want to cuddle up to old Dido Dado on the sofa <laughs> in front of this movie at an age where it might have some resonance with her. And now Scott is going to tear me apart. Fido Dado. Um, <laughs> Fido Dado. Why didn't I think of that one? Yeah. No. Um, no. No. Um, I entirely agree. My, the only thing that was uh, giving you some thought to the, otherwise was that I I don't really have all that much to say about this film, which is inversely proportional to the amount that I liked it. Oh, cool. uh, but um, no, I, I really liked it. Um, if we had been recording this a couple of weeks earlier, it would have 
definitely been on my films of the year list, so um, it will need to console itself by being the first guaranteed entry on 2020's highlight reel, but yes. Oh, I completely uh, misread your comment off mic no, earlier then. 100% recommended of it. It's pretty much agreeing with everything you're saying, that despite the baggage of antiquity, it's, all the characters are just relatable and believable and nice, and there's a great warmth to all the relationships, mm. and it's just a really charming watch. And, uh, yeah, the as you say, the central argument for sexual equality remains sadly as relevant to mere 152 years after the book's <laughs> publication uh, as it did at the time. Um, yeah, all period details on point. The cast's excellent. I don't even mind Emma Watson that much, but yeah, uh, everyone else is playing on a, playing their absolute best games. And, uh, yeah, Britta Gerwig clearly deserves all the respects. Like yourself, I've got no familiarity with the, the adaptations, mm. uh, either the source material or any of the adaptations, so I can't really say exactly how this uh, adaptation has been done, but uh, I can certainly, on the basis of the quality of everything else that is obvious in it, take it as read that it's been pretty well done as well. Um, yeah, it's just harder sometimes to laud a film than it is to bash it. I mean, we will get onto a film later that I could comfortably bash for about four hours. Um, but <laughs> so I, yeah, so I, I just feel like I'm giving Little Women kind of a short shrift when I could put all that much together for it. But yeah, it is just incredibly good. I recommend everyone watch it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Drew, did you watch Little Women? No. Um, You're a bad man. No, it's. Um, I want to see it, I just haven't had the chance. So there, there's that. Awesome. So then, on to Parasite. Scott, is this yours? Me. No, it's, it's Drew's. 2018's Cannes Film Festival Pam Dor winner, Hirokazu Koreeda's Shoplifters, was the best film I saw last year. Its release date alone is why it didn't make it into my films of the year list, though Scott did in fact mention it in that podcast. And I've thought highly of a lot of films that have won the prize, as compared to, for instance, the Oscars. So I was hoping for another hit with Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. However... I haven't had much luck with some of his other films, with Snowpiercer irritating me, and Okja pulling off the unusual feat of making me feel no emotion of any kind whatsoever. You monster. <laughs> Were oh. you in a K-hole? <laughs> <laughs> so, with that in mind, I did have some trepidation. The Kim family, Father Ki Taek, Kang Ho Song, Mother Chung Suk, He Jin Jang, and apologies for any terrible... Korean pronunciations, I have no idea how to do it properly. Sun Ki-woo, Woo-seek Choi, and Ki-jung, the daughter, So Dam Park, live in a semi-basement, a dirty, damp and mildewed kind of dwelling common to the less salubrious parts of Seoul, with one low-height window opening onto the world. Here the family scrape by as best they can, making a small amount of money by folding pizza boxes for local takeaway and other hardscrabble activities, while leeching off the neighbouring Wi-Fi to stay connected to the internet. Such are their circumstances that they even leave the ground-tight window open when a municipal fumigator comes along the street so they can have their stink bug infestation dealt with for free. Well, free plus whatever span of life several lungfuls of the stuff costs them. <laughs> but their fortunes look up when Kiwi's friend Mean turns up, asking him to take over English tutoring duties for the high school rich girl he teaches when he's going abroad to study for a year. His sister knocks up a fake diploma for him, but his personality and teaching style is more important, and he soon walks away with a job and more money than the family have seen in years. Park Yong-kyo, Yo Jong-jo, uh, the girl's mother, is, well, actually a bit dippet, and Ki-woo is soon able to persuade her to hire his sister Ki-jung as an art tutor for her young son. Though he's careful to say she's the cousin of a friend. A mixture of quick 
and devious thinking, and then some longer term but still devious scheming, sees the father's chauffeur and housekeeper booted out. And wouldn't you just know it, each new employee in turn can recommend the perfect person to fill the role. Soon the whole Kim family are working for the parks, earning what is a fortune for them, but probably barely registers for tech millionaire Mr Park, uh, Mr Park Dong-Eek, Sun Kyun Lee. In contrast to the Kim's tiny window in their sub-basement, with its panoramic views of takeaways, bags of rubbish, and floor-to-ceiling micturating drunks, the park's beautiful architect-designed modernist house has floor-to-ceiling glass looking out on a manicured lawn surrounded by well-cared-for trees, a verdant paradise within sight of Seoul's concrete sprawl. It brings to mind the quote by, or at least the quote attributed to, the great modernist architect Le Corbusier. Space and light and order. Those are the things that men need just as much as they need bread or a place to sleep. These comparisons are seen again and again through the composition and say everything about the family's relative standings and fortunes, though one of these films is, sorry, one of these families is considerably happier and more well adjusted than the other. And disadvantaged, certainly, but the Kim family are clearly not saints. Though enough hints are dropped of the difficulty of finding a job in Seoul that would cut them some slack, even if engineering the firing of others in order for them to take over is reprehensible. Keitek even begins to feel guilt and express genuine remorse, wondering whether or not those they replaced have new jobs yet. It doesn't absolve him, of course, but it certainly humanises him, and we're reminded that they're doing what they must to survive in a world with rampant inequality. Indeed, in this way, Parasite shows itself to be a darker mirror to shoplifters. But the warm and natural family dynamic, and lack of outright villainy, means that you'll likely find yourself rooting for them, and, for instance, anxious for them not to get caught as they feast in the park's house while they're away for a few days camping. And just at that moment, things go... How do you say... Tits up. (laughs) And the film takes an unexpected turn changing from a comedic drama displaying the fun of the grift to a much darker thriller. And I really don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it yet, so I'll uh, cap the plot summary there. And just say that Hong Kyun Pyo's cinematography is fantastic, and Bong's whole film is, is beautiful, efficient and taut, and it plays an intimate and relatable scale. It's also unpredictable, blackly comic, superbly acted throughout, and the socio-political subtext of the script, from the director himself and co-writer Han Jin Won, is woven expertly throughout in both visuals and dialogue. The lingering mystery of Parasite is the title, as it's not at all clear who or what the Parasite is. There are plenty of candidates, but the most obvious, the Kim family, is almost certainly the least likely. It could be the Parks, living the life of luxury afforded to them by the rewards of late capitalism, at the expense of people like the Kims. Though for me the parasite is hope, something I think the final shot seals. But you can make up your own mind, and you should, by watching it, because it's excellent. Put it in your eyes. (laughs) Scott, did you see Parasite? Yes, yes, it is really good. I remember back, as far as I can remember, that far back when we watched The Host, it's got a similar kind of dynamic being set up at the start with their kind of family relationships, which I really enjoyed. And then it went into a kind of underwhelming monster movie. Uh, Whereas this is basically just that good bit for pretty much the entire length of the film. (laughs) So, yeah, I I was totally on board with this. Uh, Really charming characters, lovely, really, really funny. 
it's, it's social commentary is I don't know if it's I don't know if it's too obvious or not obvious enough, but it's uh, it's 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 certainly very interesting in that regard as well. And I can certainly pay more attention to the themes of that uh, than I can in something like us. Uh, this I really enjoyed. My only slight niggle is there's a bit right at the end where I don't quite buy the character motivations, or uh, and, but can't get into that too much without talking about it. But it, it's not enough to ruin the rest of the film for me, which is really really good. Scott, the the bit you're mentioning is it something that the father does, the father of the Kim family. That is correct. Yes. Yes. There's a thing that he does in the, at the end that I just I, I've read ideas about what it represents, but I, I just didn't buy it as a character thing. It, it seems too much. Yes, in the text of it, it it's not out of nowhere, but it's out of a very misty area that you can't quite get a lot of definition into. Yeah, um, that's yeah. that's for me. That basically that's the one fault I had with the entire film was that because that didn't work for me. Yes, it's everything a, else is excellent. It's a s- relatively small niggle that comes very late on uh, in a film where I would say that well, that's it's a nearly it's a bit over two hours I think if I remember rightly. It's two hours twelve or something like that. Yeah, so about like what two hours and. Two of those, uh, sorry, two hours and two of those are really, really, really good uh, filmmaking. Um, just beautiful to look at, great performances, and as I say, really, really funny and hugely enjoyable. Um, absolutely recommended to anyone. Wunderbar. One can only assume the same will be true of Rise of Skywalker, Scott. Have it! Uh, uh, <laughs> Right. Uh, episode 9, Rise of Skywalker, I'd said in our last Jedi review that I hope we'll look back in a few years and say that that was the permission slip given to every director and production team that follows to do something completely different to the established Lucas-based Star Wars films. I'm not holding my breath, though. I would like to say now that I called it. Uh, Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> Rise of Skywalker sees J.J. Abrams and Cole back for directing and now writing duties, although how many of the ideas, and therefore blame for this film, comes from him and how much from the drains tightening Disney overlords is open for discussion. I suppose a plot recap is in order for the seven or eight people who haven't seen it. I'll get to it, I promise, but when the very first thing uh, this film does in the title crawl is reference a tie-in promotional event that happened in the Fortnite video game, which I guess is now canonically in the Star Wars universe, it's very difficult not to get onto a tangent about what precisely the hell is going on with this franchise. And And not to swear at a uh, (laughs) podcast we're trying to keep relatively clean. Oh, I'm I'm right behind this. Go on, Fortnite! I had to rewrite several sections of this to remove expletives. Uh, Yes, even when that event is ultimately of no consequence, but I can't decide if that makes it worse or better. Uh, anyway, Ian McDermott's Emperor Palpatine is back because why not? And he's hiding a fleet of infinite Star Destroyers, <laughs> each with Death Star lasers on board because why not? <laughs> Having survived death from episode, in episode 6 for some reason that's apparently not all that important to delve into. He's holed up on the, the lost Sith planet of Exima or something as is trying to join up with Kylo Ren and his borderline incompetent First Order goons. And actually, you know what? If you want a full recap, go to Wikipedia. One of the critical problems with this film is that it stuffs at least a film and a half's worth of plot into its running time. But even so, it's just a lot of running about with no meaning. Uh, in broad, in broad strokes, Ray and the remnants of the Rebel Force are trying to take, uh, find a Sith navigational MacGuffin to get to that their lost planet and take out the Emperor and his fleet, and Ren and his goons are trying to stop them and or bring them before Palpatine for judgement. Cue the usual Star Wars dog and pony show. Now, 
I'm not a fan of, well, Star Wars as a whole anymore, but the one interesting, if I'd argue not completely successful thing that The Last Jedi does, was look inside Abrams' patented mystery box, dig out a few of them, look at them and say that ultimately there could be no truly satisfying answer to this, because if there was, it would need to be so integral to a character's personality or arc that they could not be in that box to start with. If, for example, Ray's parentage really meant something, we'd need to know that from the outset for it to be anything more than a superficial revelation. To which Rise of Skywalker says, oh, Phil Lord no, and starts stuffing things back into that box, only to immediately pull them back out again with different answers, which is all about amateur error. And while this and a dozen other plot strands that are picked up and either instantly resolved or discarded, uh, for example, Oscar Isaac's love interest or the entirety of the Knights of Ren, are all rushed past quickly enough that Rise of Skywalker does a decent impersonation of a reasonably enjoyable Star Wars outing, assuming you still like this sort of thing, it can stand up to no scrutiny whatsoever. Yes, now, here's the problem. Yeah. Now, given that this is a film based on laser space wizards, <laughs> I'm not the sort to get all that upset about plot holes. There's a f- very few that couldn't ultimately be waved away by saying that a wizard did it, but what does annoy me about this... <laughs> What does annoy me about this is that Disney were so hungry to start recouping the franchise purchase price that they didn't sketch out even the barest coherent story or character arc for these poor bastards saddled with acting in it or writing and directing it, which leaves us with this cobbled together closer for a trilogy in name only that appears primarily concerned with an excuse to make new Palpatine action figures and to continue strip mining the franchise's past, which is ironic given that the closest thing I can think of for a linking theme for the new trilogy is that it's about letting go of the past and not letting it define you where the, f- the films themselves continue to be wholly defined by that original trilogy. It's because they're copies of them, more or less. And it's not served anyone well, and it's hard to see this as anything, uh, say anything in the modern trilogy is anything other than the quest for dollars, which is perhaps always the case in the studio tentpole game, but even when Lucas was disastering his way through the prequels, there was at least an obvious point to them, told through a clear character arc, and there's nothing like that in these two films. They're well made, they've got likeable performances, and there's enough gloss to obfuscate most of this, but there's just no point to them. While the likes of Daisy Ridley, Oscar Isaacs and John Boyega bring enough charisma with their performances to be likeable enough and engaging enough to bluster their way through this, in the, what, seven hours following these people around? What have we actually learned about any of these characters or their motivations or their past or anything to do with them to really care about any of them? Look, there's a lot to talk about. if not specifically about The Rise of Skywalker, but more about Disney's general handling of Star Wars and what's happening going forward. See also a recent uh, Trends of the Decade episode. So I won't monopolise discussion further, but if you want my verdict on this, it's a bad ending to a middling trilogy, and if I had any great love left for Star Wars, I would find this greatly upsetting. As I don't, (laughs) it's just mildly irritating and entirely forgettable. Drew, speak, priest! (laughs) Yeah, um, the first thing I want to mention is to in response to Scott's points is you mentioned about Disney seeming like hell bent on getting their money back as soon as possible mm. and that honestly baffles me because it's the same company that owns Marvel who have done this incredible pre-planned thing that is yeah. netting yeah. them an incredibly cohesive well-produced universe yeah mm. I wanted to make that point of how <laughs> is this thing possible that Marvel are doing better than other people is taking existing IP and actually developing it in a respectful way which clearly Disney are not doing with Star Wars yeah, yeah I, I don't understand how it can be under the um, auspices of the same company it's so short sighted yeah second thing is that when I came out of this I thought oh some things I liked some things I didn't like I found that reasonably enjoyable mm-hmm if I'd stopped there, I might have been okay. 
But yeah. as you both know, I am entirely <laughs> incapable of doing that. Entirely incapable of not thinking about things. And the more you think about it, the more it falls apart to the point now I hate this f- film. It's awful. <laughs> it's, I mean, I really, honestly, really, really want to not care. But I do. <laughs> I care deeply. Uh, and it bothers me. It's, I mean, from the get-go, quite apart from the Fortnite thing, which you'd warned me about, Scott, I hadn't heard that beforehand, but you'd told me about that, and like, so I was already kind of angry about the film before I even got to the opening crawl. Yeah. It's like, from the get-go, they're basically looking at The Last Jedi, which I still think is the best Star Wars film since Empire, mm-hmm. and they went, they basically well, Ryan Johnson, screw you, and retconning everything. Like, anything that happened in that film, yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So they've got therefore like basically half a film's crammed in somewhere of them undoing everything that was done there, because for some reason they've been making this up as they go along. Yeah. Mm. It makes no sense. I do not understand that. Um, yeah. Again, though, but that's the thing about that's the baffling thing about them not playing the long game, Drew, is that this is something they paid four billion dollars for. They're building theme parks around, and the stuff that's actually informing it from a story point of view, as you've just pointed out, they are making up as they go along. Yeah, how can you invest that much money in anything and not plan it? <laughs> yeah. How can you, like, at least? Um, a series of bullet points would be enough. Yeah, a yeah. basic story arc of like where you want to go and your main um, character beats and stuff, yeah. and then like maybe certain like people respond to things in the Force Awakens more than others. Not, okay, but we hammer more on that, pull back in other things, but at least have a plan. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's just it's such a stupid, stupid, stupid film. The thing that frustrates me is this conversation and this sort of emotional. Um, subplot people are trying to build around this film as like you've just said Drew about it's like you to Ryan Johnson it's hard to it's hard to see it as any other way because that's probably what it feels like but of course it's not it's Disney don't hate Ryan Johnson they're not saying you to Ryan Johnson they they gave Ryan Johnson free reign as far as we're aware JJ still... Abrams is clearly is well I, no again JJ Abrams has been done with so JJ Abrams let's be clear I've been saying this for years is a total hack he's a, he's maybe a step above Chris Columbus and that's JJ about it I think JJ Abrams can do action really well what he can't do is write and he's one yeah. of the seven credited screenwriters on this but I yeah. think on the principal one we, they keep trying to sell us JJ Abrams as the new Spielberg and it ain't happening because he's no, not he's stop not pretending that he is and there also are, Spielberg isn't, uh, doesn't uh, think he should yeah. write he lets other people who are better at writing do the writing for him yeah exactly the man's a hack and he's uh, this is not you from him to Ryan Johnson either. He doesn't care. Disney have just said, oh, okay, there was a lot of backlash to stuff in The Last Jedi, so we're going to ask you to do this again because people were happy with the first one and here's a list of stuff that we need to happen and he's ticked off the list as he's gone along. And honestly, that's the discussion needs to be about how Disney are treating this IP that they've paid so much money for and they're building theme parks around that they're allowing it to be made up by people as they go along. It is frankly insane. And again, we've said it before, Marvel are doing this stuff so much better than anyone else. They are showing that there is a way it can be done and the audiences will come back to see 27 films in a row, (laughs) whatever the tally is at this point, with no, obviously, fluctuations from film to film, but no discernible sort of downturn anywhere anywhere through there that could be perceived as a fan backlash to any of the films. And Disney, within the space of three... 
have managed to go all round the houses, make a complete hash of it, and upset just about everybody at some point. And yeah, we we discussed this before, didn't we, Drew? Uh, in fact, did we discuss it in the the trends podcast? Did we talk about Last Jedi then? And the fact Definitely that very recently I've talked. Yeah, about and the fact that I'd gone back and revisited it, and I actually agree with you now, Drew, that I think it is the best one since Empire. I th- I think I just think people are going to look back on this in ten years and think, oh wow, yeah, that was a bit crazy, wasn't it? Um, allowing bizarre, sad little factions of internet trolls to dictate what happens to a $4 billion franchise. <laughs> yeah, cool, cool story, Disney. You, you, you deserve what you get, frankly. Um, yeah, just just mental, man. I've This is the first time that a Star Wars film has hit the cinema and I've just been like, eh. I've always at least mustered some sort of enthusiasm to go and try and see them if I can at the cinema and I just genuinely don't care about this one. Mm, I genuinely don't care. It's frustrating because there are actually really good bits in it. Um, mm. But before I go on either end, I, I have a lot to say about this film. Um, but can we assume from this point onwards, or allow us to, to go to spoiler territory? Um, this gives me an opportunity to break out the um, the spoiler klaxon again. Yes, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> Um, so from this point onwards, if you've not seen Star Wars yet and don't want to hear us discuss it, skip to the end. This is the last film we're covering in this episode. Um, otherwise, stick around. Um, and Scott's good enough to drop chapter markers in, so... Yeah, um, right. Of all the... the really, honestly, there are good things in here, right? The acting of a lot of the principals actually really good. Um... There's like really good chemistry between Oscar Isaac and John Boyega, which is um, mm-hmm. weird given they've barely been on screen together in the other two episodes. So it's like, well, what are you like what you were missing. Um, yeah. And I actually, I knew there was meant to be uh, this. Like, so many people were talking so much about it because the people of the world already. It's about like the gay kiss, and I was like, maybe slightly persuaded by. Uh, a red letter media thing for The Force Awakens, but I actually assumed it was going to be Finn and um Oh, you you naive fellow. Yeah. You naive chap. Imagine it being something actually that couldn't be cut out of markets where that would be a yeah. <laughs> problematic. Finn and Poe because they're really, really in love with each other for the whole film. It's really yeah. clear. <laughs> um and it's like, oh no, there's like one barely in focus peck on the lips um, for half a second at the end of the film. I was like, that's just offensive. Yeah. That's genuinely offensive that that's, that's what I was, especially given like, well, those looked like they were a couple and there's this mystery to the film of, which presumably got lost in the terrible editing or the fact that they're trying to cram so much into this film and it never stops. Uh, at one point, Finn says, I've got something to tell you. For most of the film, it's like, I'm in love with Poe. No, it's not. It's nothing because they forget to actually do that. Because yeah. well done, JJ. Once you've made a hash, you've been, you know. There are two really, really big problems I have with this film, um, more than any others. And I know you look at my notes because I forgot what the other one was. <laughs> so apparently, it can't be that big. Um, one, it's gash. Two, <laughs> it's gash. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, one, it's like ties in with the. Undoing the Last Jedi too, but like the Star Wars universe is is really unimaginative and small and small minded, right? It's all got the same stuff in it all the time, and it's this huge universe. They should be able to do something, but they in the Last Jedi they set up the fact that Ray's parents, you know, they weren't special, 
I thought, great, that's really good because we've already done the story arc of the person who was the child of the really important person. Mm. That's what the original trilogy was about. And like the second film said, uh, ah, no, it's not important. Brilliant, great, except there was all the theories about it being Obi Wan Kenobi's child and everything. And yeah. like, then it gets like, oh no, she's Palpatine's granddaughter. F- off. I, I just don't stop f-ing off. Like, well, no, it, that's not interesting. You've done it before. It's really not just doesn't make a lick of sense. And you've already established in your other films that Jedi are meant to be celibate. So in which case, given there were tens of thousands of Jedi, they must be quite plentiful across the galaxy, people that are like sensitive to the Force. You didn't need to do that. Hmm. Uh, what annoyed me most about Ray Palpatine is, as I say, if, if her being a Palpatine was in any way informed her character... We'd have needed to have known that long before then. She would have needed to have known that. Otherwise, it's just something that's thrown at the last minute and go, oh, you're a Palpatine. Oh, well, that doesn't really mean anything to me. I'm still going to fight you because I'm good. Yeah, Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Um, And the other big thing, this is not my biggest problem with it, and compared to the prequels, what this new trilogy have done is pulled back a lot on the, like, a thousand lightsaber battles and thousands with a thousand lightsabers and attack the clones at one point. And that's good. It's shown a bit more restraint. So the, that's one of the good points of this new trilogy. Any lightsaber battle is meaningful. You know, they're, they're actually interspersed and they generally have character beats in them too. I mean, that's great. What they've done in this film, though, is... Because even in the prequels, right, the Force was basically a thing that... Kind of this mystical energy, whatever, and Jedi could use it. But at the most point, it gave you an edge... That's all it did, right? Maybe made you a bit faster, better reactions, or if you wanted to use it for evil like Palpatine, you can influence people, right? Or, or fire lightning at their face, to be fair. <laughs> but still, that was with, like, like person right to person. Ass. Person to person, though, right, Scott? <laughs> it was like, so, like, the Force basically gave you an edge. In this film, the Force has become universe-changing magic, and it's appalling. <laughs> I'm not even joking, it's like suddenly like one person can electrocute like 10,000 ships or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm talking of, of the, the other ships. But it's pleasing the fanboys. Remember the fanboys who were really upset about the Force projection thing in The Last Jedi? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which it doubles down on in this, actually. It's oh, cool. Stronger. Yeah. Um, no, it's... like the, the Emperor's got this... It's like, Presumably come from the Force or something, but the Emperor or the clone of the Emperor. I don't think he. I mean, not to meant to have died in Return of the Jedi. It's a clone, and actually that I'm fine with. Apart from the books have covered Emperor's clones loads of times. The original Star Wars, within twenty minutes, is talking about clones. That has always been there. That is actually fine. Hmm. And other things that might seem really stupid. No, their entire films about clones. They knew that that was in Star Wars. The first, there was like, I fought with your father in the Clone Wars. You know, that, that was always a thing. So that's okay. But apparently he's just created... Because everything in this, they've just had to turn up to, like, 20, basically. Everything's too much. They've got, like, 10... I think they mentioned 10,000 ships or something. Or, no. Actually, it must be more, because Richard E. Grant's character says we're going to increase our power 10,000-fold. Yeah. Yeah, how how did they build those? Well, that was that was explained away. You see, because the emperor emperor has those uh, that little force of 
troglodytes it seemed to be uh, that were yeah. worshipping him so I assume that once they finish worshipping him they just go off to the shipyards and build some really high tech ships with the death car star cannons on yeah. them because got but, a contract with Foxconn yeah. but, but they get money <laughs> the money and the resources and the staff in there to build us despite the fact there are only two things in the entire existence that will let you get there Mm. Mm, yeah, they've not thought of this through. See, one thing that didn't happen with this film was thinking. Yes. Anyway, whatsoever. Yes, yeah, so you're making the um, mistake of thinking too much, Drew. Yeah, but you know I can't not do that. I know. Um, but then. Don't do it to yourself. They just come in and then they seem to forget which film they're in. They suddenly think they're in Nicolas Cage's National Treasure when they find things by a special knife with a slidey out bit. <laughs> it's offensively <laughs> stupid Is that what happens in National Treasure? I, I had this conversation yeah. with someone the other day That I think, because you know growing up Where you have just like a photographic memory For everything that happens in every film <laughs> I think National Treasure Was the first film That I saw at a cinema where I have got Literally no recollection of a damn thing That happens <laughs> in it I don't remember, I remember like one of them had uh something hidden somebody's desk that the Queen yeah. Victoria gave one present and in the second National Treasure film they need a photograph of something and apparently nobody has a camera phone and the best way they can think to do it is to speed through a traffic light in London and hold it up to the traffic camera then hack into London's traffic <laughs> camera database to get the photograph they took of the thing they were holding up to the windscreen at the time while they were being chased <laughs> and I hate that I remember vague, that <laughs> that rings a vague bell and when I say rings a vague bell did it have the Liberty Bell in it as well <laughs> It did, didn't it? Didn't one, one of them, them have did, the Liberty think, Bell in it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah so I do remember something. Sorry. There is a, there Rise is of Skywalker. <laughs> one, of, one of many MacGuffins in this film is a knife to let them know where the other MacGuffin they need to get is hidden. So they need a MacGuffin to get a MacGuffin. Uh-huh. And it's basically like something out of National Treasure or something like that. that how, how do you use a knife to navigate in space? You don't. What you do is apparently in the past, because this knife is ancient, and you that the Death Star would la- crash land on a planet, despite the fact the Death Star was destroyed, uh-huh. crash land on a planet and be in exactly the right shape so that you could ins- uh, inscribe the edge of the blade with the shape of the, the crashed Death Star, and then pull a wee bit out of the blade that will show you exactly where in the crashed Death Star the thing, you're, the MacGuffin you're looking for is hidden. I have foreseen it. It's Unbelievably stupid. <laughs> this thing, I have film, a Garmin sat nav. <laughs> the film is is so got so much in it, and it basically never, <laughs> ever, ever stops. And it's relying on you on it never stopping, so you never ever think. And my brain works more quickly than that. So even while I was watching it, it's um, I'm getting offended by how stupid this is. But. Uh, yeah, no. Take the second exit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Your faith in Google Maps is yours. <laughs> Sorry, Drew. Sorry. Anyway, so, really so I always thought it was weird that Tom Tom sounded very like Tonton. <laughs> oh Christ, that's terse. Thank you. Somehow you've managed to lower it. I assume you mean tenuous, but yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then like there's two really clear points in this film where you could kill off major characters that would be meaningful, and they do neither. But um, it's about C-3PO is like going to ah, I'm going to sacrifice myself for my friends that I've known for like three minutes. But okay, but then they undo it because he's a robot, so they give him a backup. Mm. Mm. Well, they've got and toys to think about. There's yeah. a scene where Ray thinks she's killed Chewbacca, and that's the one that bothers me more. Um, yeah, I've heard about this because. 
that's that's actually would have been an incredibly important card at the moment, especially if mm-hmm. you're buying into the whole she's the granddaughter of the most evil person that's ever lived, basically. It's like she's got power she doesn't really understand, can't control that she's therefore dangerous mm. and potentially evil. That's actually really interesting. If she inadvertently kills someone with like not knowing what she's doing, um, you know, they could have done, uh, no, no, no. There was it was a basically a um, a shell game, and he was in a different ship all along. Mm. Psych. Um, and presumably they had to keep him alive just so that he could cry at the end, and also so that Maz Kanada, the orange character, who <laughs> was definitely in the other films, definitely, yeah. um, can it's it's so offensive. This. I kind of forgot that I was watching it with my niece at the time, um, so <laughs> I don't think she heard me swear because the film's incredibly loud. So it's just as well because Maz Kanada turns up, walks up to Chewbacca in the middle of a forest, hands him the medal that he conspicuously didn't get in A New Hope, and said, mm. "Here, this is for you." And it's a f- off really loudly in the middle of the cinema. And I couldn't help myself. <sighs> so, well, the tube was all right, but presumably it did hundreds of other people die? Maybe. <laughs> cool, but Chewie was alright, yeah? Yeah. We can all be happy then. We can keep selling um, the toys. Yeah, my, just to go, just, honestly, when I came out, I'd quite enjoyed it. And then I just thought about it and the whole thing fell apart because everything about this film was wrong. Well, it means there's no stakes, isn't it? If they demonstrate that they're literally unwilling to end any character, then what's the point? Yeah. I'm amazed they bothered with Han Solo to start with, to be honest. Yeah, but that's because Harrison Ford wanted out, although he's actually well, yeah. back in this film. How they persuade him to do that, I have no idea. It's a massive oh, no, of money. Oh, uh, wait, well, wait a minute, as like a force ghost or something. Mm, that's a memory. Oh, right, okay. Um, <sighs> but, yeah, it's the only person of import, depending whether you think Palpatine's dead or not, because, well, clones, so maybe <laughs> not. We've already demonstrated that he probably isn't, surely, yeah. if he's back in this one. Um, I thought he was pretty comprehensible up at the end of <laughs> well, the end of Return of the Jedi well, they kill off Adam Driver's character because he sacrificed himself and that's maybe the one bit of the film I actually kind of liked mm. is he's another person as much as he was like kind of Darth Emo I quite like Adam Driver he's, I know he's a, a special effect Scott yeah. likes most of the time <laughs> um, I quite like him in that so that was okay and then they kill off Princess Leia, but since the actor's already dead, that doesn't necessarily have a lot of import. Mm. But for everything else, like character-wise, they're just it, the film never stops, and they bring in a character whose like arc is re- resolved in almost literally three minutes. Yeah. So it's like this love interest of Poe Dameron who comes in, says, "I've got this really important thing I've been saved my whole life for. Also, I hate you. You abandoned us." There's a wee scuffle with some stormtroopers like, you know that really um, important thing to me I've saved my whole life to get? Yeah, here, you can have it now because you need it for your plot, bye-bye. And then that's that, that character apart from like a brief glimpse at the end. And it's full of stuff like that. Character pops in for half a scene and then goes away again. And there was no time to breathe this entire film. <sighs> it's just, it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. I mean... Again, it still somehow manages to be entertaining in parts, but it is an absolute honking mess. I'll end up seeing it at some point, because as we discussed before, uh, when the kids are a bit older, um, I'll let them watch the the new ones. They're already nagging me about um, The Force Awakens, but I I feel like they're maybe a little bit too too young for some some of this stuff. So inevitably, when they're a bit older, I'll sit and watch this with them, but I don't intend to catch up with it before then. Yeah, it's, it's... 
I just, I really wanted to have stopped even for like 10 seconds. Just like, you know, just breathe, just breathe. Ten, especially for like a two hour, 20 minute film. It's like, you know, there's no stopping at all. There's no down moments. Lots of pointless cars. They've added, well, there's the horse lady and the helmet lady and Lando because fan service, I guess, so it's actually not so bad on the fan service front of this. Um, and I've probably a bunch of other cars still need to be there, except then, and going back to the whole screw you, Ryan Johnson thing, because I do believe it. But um, the like the Last Jedi sets up that Rose really loves Finn, and she sac- almost sacrificed herself to save him from sacrificing himself and stuff. Like, I think she's in the background of Acid in this film, maybe, possibly for a minute. Mm. Yeah, she, she, so. she shows up and says, "I can't be in this film." Bye. Because the internet hates me, yeah. apparently. <laughs> yeah, it's... I'm, I, I'm going to stop now. It's, it's just such a mess. And uh, the thing is... The, you are dedicating an awful lot of time to a film that doesn't deserve it, clearly. I, know, I, I told you I don't want to care, but I do. That's the problem. It's, um, I, get, I, I just get offended by how much they've squandered a property that lots of people genuinely love, Right. Because they didn't even have the capacity to sit down and sketch out a basic plots arc for three films. That's offensive. Yeah. And it's just... And kind of there are good things in here. Oscar Isaac and John Boyega and Daisy Ridley sometimes when she's with them. There's a lot of chemistry there. They're really fun. Ian McDermott is so over the top of this film that I was convinced it was somebody doing an Ian McDermott impression, but it isn't. <laughs> um, so that can be quite entertaining. And... Now, there are bits and pieces here of people actually kind of doing like fun things, and there's some good acting in there, just in the the service of absolutely nothing at all. No, right. just to just to chime in on the Twitter's uh, at Blake writes for talking about Rise. If the Force Awakens invited the question where we might we go from here, then the two sequels, nearly a billion dollars of filmmaking budgets later, we finally have an answer: nowhere. <laughs> a vacuous, <laughs> awkwardly built mausoleum to both originality and nostalgia. Uh, yeah, agree entirely. It's just. My, my major problems with the first two films was always that they didn't seem to be going anywhere. They were all shots to nothing. They were safety shots. And it was leaving an awful lot of film to try and put into this one. And it's not managed to do it, to no one's surprise. What a waste of effort. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, thank you for listening. Of course, you can get in touch with us if you have any comments you want to add. Uh, you can contact us on the Facebooks, the Twitter. Uh, where else? The emails? Do people still do emails? I don't that's think a, people that's, do anymore, man. They want to Snapchat us and stuff. I think Snapchat's probably horribly anachronistic by this point. They probably want to yeah. TikTok us. It's a thing, right? Do, TikTok do is a us? thing. TikTok is rude. a thing. Yes, um, but we are not on the TikTok, so don't TikTok us. Um, if you think you're TikToking us, you're TikToking someone else. Yeah. Um, I hear TikTok and think Intel, so yeah, <laughs> it doesn't work for me. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> cool story, bro. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, you get the gist. Thanks with uh, be- uh, thanks for rather bearing with us for another episode. Uh, I have been Craig. Scott was Scott. Goodbye. Drew was Drew. Hasta luego. And we'll speak to you all again and on. Bye bye.